0: My name is Amy Forrester, and I'm a litigation partner with Pepper Hamilton. I want to welcome you to the next installment in a series of podcasts that Pepper Hamilton and Troutman Sanders are producing to discuss litigation topics that have been brought to the forefront by the COVID-19 pandemic and how businesses might be able to prepare and respond. Today's podcast is going to focus on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on litigation itself, both ongoing and newly filed cases. Our panel today includes Jeff Carr and Alan Kessel, both litigation partners with Pepper Hamilton, and Allison Grounds and Lindsay Mann, litigation partners with Troutman Sanders. Each of our panelists has extensive experience representing clients in complex litigation matters in state and federal courts across the country, as well as before a broad spectrum of administrative agencies. Our panelists are going to be addressing current trends and tips to keep cases progressing, virtual depositions, issues to consider for when the courts reopened their physical operations, and impacts of the virtual work environment on data collection. We're also going to be forward-looking, considering some permanent changes that we might see to litigation practice following COVID-19. With that brief introduction, I'm going to dive right in. Let's start by discussing current trends we are seeing and how we can move cases forward in light of the current delays and stays. For that, I'm going to turn it over to Alan Kessel.
1: Uh, In general, courts are closed throughout the country in varying degrees until at least June 1st of this year. And uh, by varying degrees, I mean, entirely close for business where the courts aren't even accepting filings, much less conducting hearings of any kind, telephonic or otherwise, to operating, with the exception of in-person proceedings, fairly normally, where they're accepting filings, ruling on motions, and conducting hearings both uh, telephonically and through video conferencing. Uh, By way of example, I had uh, two hearings last week um, in federal court, each of which were conducted telephonically and they were significant matters and they went off without a hitch conversely in the Orange County State Courts um, they're not even accepting filings um, and they will not and the filings won't even be processed until the courts reopen sometime later this year Uh, the effects and a lot more in common and uh, fortunately so Um, first a tremendous backlog that has been developing um, and uh, in, in uh, again, using uh, California and Orange County in as an example um, by the presiding judge that there are approximately 24,000 cases that need to be rescheduled on the criminal calendar, 6,000 of which are felony cases. On the civil calendar, there are 9,500 hearings that are required to be rescheduled and 25,000 new civil case filings which have been submitted but will not be processed until the court reopens. And the ramifications of that backlog are are multifold. Uh, Civil judges are going to be enlisted to help with the the criminal cases um, consistent with uh, criminal defendants' constitutional rights to speedy trial. And as a result, um, the earliest that civil motions are expected to be heard uh, at this point are late July or August at the earliest. Um, And the delay, like I said, will also be exacerbated by the fact that the filings that have come off, the 25,000 new cases in Orange County that have just been filed, will not even be processed until the court reopens, which again at the earliest looks like June 1st. Uh, I want to point out that, you know, as the pandemic and its effects continually evolve, so do do the courts' uh, responses to it. And I would uh, suggest or point to at least two websites where I found a survey on on, uh, both a national and a a very specific state level. On a national basis, both at federal and state courts, I I, uh, looked at my alma mater's uh, website, and the NYU Brennan Center for Justice uh, does a great survey that's updated uh, very frequently uh, with respect to how courts across the country are dealing with the effects of the pandemic. Uh, the uh, state courts in California also have a website and have a matrix uh, where they uh, go through what is happening in each of the 58 counties in the state and update that as well. Um, the uh, the anticipated uh, changes in practice that I believe are gonna happen and I've seen are that um, motions are, are gonna be decided Uh, on the pleadings, uh, I I believe in many cases, and without oral argument, unless specifically requested by the court, more akin to what you see many federal courts do and a lot of courts here in in the Central District of California do. And I think that puts a large emphasis on the quality of the writing and getting to the point because you're not gonna have a chance to make up for what's not in your papers um, in oral argument. Um, When, Hearings are held. I expect that they're going to. You're going to have to be short, sweet, and get to the point quickly. And I expect that discovery and other similarly less substantive motions are going to not only be discouraged, um, but that the courts will uh, you know, take a dim view of them. And if necessary, farm them out either to judges pro tems or to private arbitrators. And so, the, the, you know, the takeaway from that is is that choose your battles carefully. Judges are gonna be overworked, they're gonna be stressed out, and uh, they're only gonna wanna hear the matters that absolutely need to be heard. Um, Next, uh, no pun intended, I believe the jury is out, so to speak, as to when and how jury and bench trials will resume. Uh, By way of example, in Orange County, remote depots uh, are now not presently required, and if the parties are subsequently not ready for trial, um, the court has made clear, at least the presiding judge has, that a trial date will not be set. And um, if, a, if a practitioner can't be forced to personally attend a deposition, which is understandable if, for example, he's, in the, uh, you know, he's older or he or she is older and therefore you know, target group, but, um, I think the same will apply, I expect the same to apply with respect to trials both in terms of for practitioners and in terms of impaneling a jury and i think we're going to have some very interesting questions in how to properly balance the administration of justice with public health and safety concerns and what liabilities may result from it um i have seen some cases um, settled or dismissed uh, due to the reassessment of client priorities cash flow whether or not the ends justify the means types of analyses, and also to maintain relationships that parties believe are gonna be essential to their future business operations. And then finally, while hearings, trial motions, and other court proceedings, each have been adversely affected in varying degrees, discovery has largely gone on unabated and without any real significant changes in the Attended deadlines and so with that I would turn back to Amy for discussion as to how we deal with uh, discovery during this pandemic
0: Thanks so much Alan, I'm going to turn it over to Allison and ask Allison Can you please talk about how we can keep cases moving forward in light of these delays?
2: Absolutely, thanks Amy Uh, to reiterate some of the points that Alan covered uh, Discovery, for example, continues uh, to move forward despite um, some of the setbacks in the hearings and e um, eDiscovery is sort of the land that I occupy um, my days and nights, and in that space, um, we're continuing to collect client data remotely. Uh, that's technology that we, that's been around that we use all the time, but it's become even more important uh, while we're all in isolation and, and remote. Um, In addition to remote data collection, we're of course processing and analyzing client data in cloud-based applications um, and conducting virtual document reviews, adding additional layers of security that we might not have had when we were doing document reviews on premise in the law firm to make sure that the reviewers have limited access and the inability to download documents to their machines and things of that nature. So on the discovery front, um certainly able to do electronic discovery uh, virtually and pretty seamlessly. There's additional considerations in terms of, of data security and logistics. And, and as we're all experiencing, in some instances, needing to help uh, our clients and colleagues navigate new technology challenges. But it's been one area of litigation uh, where we've seen um, a lot of consistency and, and very little delays.
0: Thank you, Allison. That's a great segue to our next topic, which is one we've been getting a lot of questions about. Lindsay, can I ask you to please talk a bit about the challenges and practical considerations of virtual deposition?
3: Thanks, Amy. Yeah, it is an interesting topic. And you're right that we're getting a lot of questions about um, virtual depositions and how to go about them. Um, It's a big topic. So I'm just going to highlight a few areas where we've had the most questions, um, starting with technology. Um, So. You know, we've been, a lot of our vendors that we use um, routinely have been reaching out to us and they are working on virtual deposition platforms that make it easier um, to take depositions in this remote work environment. Um, Allison and I have actually participated in a couple of them and they're really interesting. I encourage you if you're thinking about ta- you know taking a deposition in a virtual environment um, to, to participate in a demo if you can or talk to someone who's seen it because the layouts and platforms a little bit maybe a little bit hard to get used to. Um, There are some things you'll have to consider if you're going to go that route like for example whether to preload your exhibits or not. I mean the softwares we've seen have an you know have a layout where you can preload them and share them when you're ready. Um, You'll also need to consider for example how many video feeds you need. Do you want just the witness on the video? Would you like for the questioning attorney to be seen? The defending attorney? So those are considerations to think about before you um, or as you're engaging your uh, virtual deposition vendor. Um, you'll also, another thing that I think is interesting, is thinking about a way, a way in which you could be assisted in taking a deposition by a second chair attorney, paralegal. Um, if someone's going to be helping you upload exhibits, um, you'll have to make sure they have access to, to be able to do that. And um, also think about how you might communicate with them. If you're using your phone, um, audio to take the deposition, which is what most of these vendors recommend, you'll have to come up with some alternative way to communicate with your assistant, for example, through Skype maybe, or email. Um, but those are kinks to be worked out in advance of the deposition for sure. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on was exhibits. And we've gotten a lot of questions about exhibits and whether it makes sense to preload them into the virtual platform or whether you should go an analog route and print them out and and send them by US Mail or FedEx to to the witness, to opposing counsel, to the court reporter. I think there are pros and cons with both um, with both methods. I think if you, if you can upload them to the virtual platform, you have a lot of flexibility in order of depositions. You don't have to pre-mark them all. You can, um, it's almost like having a stack of papers at your side in a normal deposition and you can share them when you're ready. Um, it also captures edits made during the deposition very easily. So you can see the witness marking a document and that would be captured um, it keeps people from reviewing the documents ahead of time. Um, you know, one downside is that it may be difficult to flip through a large PDF, for example, electronically. And some people are just more comfortable holding a piece of paper, especially if all they're working with is a laptop screen. Um, so there are pros and cons to each. I will say if you decide to go the, um, the traditional route and, send, and print the documents and send them by mail, um, you should put them in a sealed package and instruct the witness not to open them and instruct the lawyer opposing counsel not to open them until you are on the record. Um, Allison and I have been working on an sort of interesting paper about the ethical considerations of practicing law in a remote world, and that's one topic that keeps coming up. So if you were to receive exhibits through the mail, are you allowed to look at them? Could you talk to your witness about them? Um, I think the answers to those questions are likely no, Um, but to to protect yourself as best you can, you know, just send a note instructing them not to open the documents until you're on the record. Speaking of instructions, I wanted to say, you know, also when you go on the record, I think it would be helpful to say, okay, now open your envelope and and so that that's all captured on the record. You might also instruct them to get rid of other technology, get rid of their cell phones, Kindles, whatever, anything else that might, that they might be using to communicate, you know, you don't want to think that opposing counsel is suggesting answers or, or doing anything like that. But just to protect yourself, you want to try to get rid of all of those distractions. Um, I'll wind this down, uh, you know, another thing that um, we, most of this conversation has been focused on tips for taking a deposition, but I think defending a deposition is also presents some interesting challenges virtually. And I think highlights a really critical need to have a detailed prep session, or maybe two. Um, talk through um, the importance of allowing time for an objection. It, you know, that's something we do typically anyway. Is ask our witness to pause and think about the question before they answer. Um, I think it's a critical. It's critical in this virtual environment to allow the defending attorney to to raise an objection if there is one. Um, and then, you know, just develop some sort of system for conferring with your witness during breaks. Again, you might have that same challenge with the phone audio. So just come up with a way that you can communicate with your witness during breaks.
0: Thanks, Lindsay. What can we do um, if folks are ready to move into the virtual world? And I think Lindsay hit on much of that. But things we can do are, you know, we can help develop an internal toolkit. Uh, So that attorneys are prepared to tackle these virtual depositions, taking into consideration all the really important points that Lindsay already raised. And also working closely with those court reporters and videographers with whom we have tight relationships to make sure we can make this happen as seamless as possible. We have offices across the country, and we are certainly happy to work with folks and help make those spaces available to the extent possible. But with that, let's turn our attention to what's going to happen when the courts are fully open for business. I'm going to turn to you, Jeff. What types of litigation issues do you see increasing or crowding the docket at this time?
4: Thanks, Amy. It's hard to imagine what's not going to be uh, around the corner. I think we should be more inclusive as to what we talk about, what we're going to see, because the the amount of disruption in business, the economy and life in general, it's hard to uh, imaginary law that would be insulated uh, from the pandemic, and I see many areas of litigation perhaps increasing. The obvious ones are uh, insurance coverage litigation. We've already seen dozens of cases filed throughout the country, and in fact, there was an application made to the JPML on Monday for uh, an MDL to be in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Uh, there are also states, at least a half dozen, the last I looked, that are considering legislation that would clarify that COVID-19 uh, constitutes property damage or physical damage, and therefore the insurance industry is likely to be pushing back, and that will be another area of litigation. Another obvious one is bankruptcy litigation. Uh, as much money as the government can throw at small business and medium-sized businesses, I think there to be a lot of bankruptcy issues. Um, And I call those two, the insurance issues and the bankruptcy issues, kind of the obvious ones. Um, The not so obvious ones are your contract cases. The massive disruption in the markets, uh, there are gonna be contracts that are bound to be breached and they're gonna be breached early and they're gonna be breached often. Um, And I think the sky's really the limit uh, on contract cases. I don't think there's any particular area. For example, purchase orders are not gonna be filled. Uh, There's gonna be late or non-delivery of products. Supply agreements might be uh, affected uh, because of this disruption in the supply chain. You know, For example, raw materials sourced internationally, um, there's a couple issues there. You have the world in shutdown not being able to ship because of government restrictions, uh, and you also have worker shortages in different locations, so even if you didn't have government restrictions, you have the inability to staff in order to fulfill orders. Um, also simple breaches for failure to pay uh, right now cash flow is difficult uh, for many businesses and they have to prioritize uh, what are they going to pay and they're going to have to selectively breach contracts there's real estate lease litigation um, there's been a lot of talk about having even big box uh, retailers stop paying landlords and on the flip side landlords may not be able to meet construction or delivery obligations under leases so the one thing that I, I, I can say is that I see a lot of litigation. Um, I don't think it's limited to any particular area as it relates to breach of contract, but you know perhaps we should be looking at standstill agreements so cooler heads can prevail. Um, the other major area I see is consumer cases. Um, the travel, hospitality industry uh, is gonna be hit for refunds uh, or change fees that are imposed. Ticket sellers uh, for sports entertainment for canceled events. You know, Major League Baseball was sued, I think, today or yesterday, and all the online uh, ticket sellers were, were sued, along with all the Major League Baseball teams, I think, in California, uh, by a class action uh, alleging that the games weren't merely postponed, but rather they were canceled and they want their money back. You know, everyday things, gym membership refunds. Um, other memberships where the businesses were non-essential shut down you're going to see litigation there and we've already seen some price gouging litigation against amazon for things like toilet paper and hand sanitizer so i think there's a lot of consumer cases i think there's a lot of commercial contract cases and finally those are going to be you know employment cases uh, there's many layoffs i'm sure there's more act issues uh when there are layoffs there tend to be more discrimination issues um perhaps whistleblower allegations we have employers now that do not know what the new normal is they may not be filing the cdc guidelines or osha guidelines or not following carefully enough um could be wrongful death i know walmart was sued for wrongful death and while we have the workers comp bar perhaps there's going to be litigation regarding how that workers comp bar is going to Uh, hold up in light of CDC guidelines and intentional acts or OSHA guidelines and failure to follow. And even non-compete cases may arise. You're gonna have a lot of people unemployed like you do now, and when they flood back into, hopefully, the workplace, they might be landing at competitors, so there might be non-compete issues and also uh, trade secret issues. So, like I said before, I think there's really very few limits I see on future litigation, just a lot of uncertainty as to the volume, but not uncertainty as to the breadth.
0: It sure sounds like there's going to be some backlog necessarily when the courts uh, open their physical locations. Are there any things you can think of that attorneys can do now uh, to help manage that backlog
4: in the future? Uh, managing the backlog is going to be uh, incredibly difficult, not only for the lawyers and the parties, but also the courts. Um, there was a non-scientific poll by the National Judicial College, uh, I think, earlier this week. And to give you an example of the extent of the backlog, that non-scientific poll uh, determined that courts were down to operating at 25 percent or less of their normal operations and that was a poll of federal judges from around the country, approximately 800 plus judges responding to that. So the backlog is gonna be significant. Uh, Courts have pushed deadlines, as Alan addressed earlier. We have uh, extended judicial holidays, for example, in New Jersey to try to manage that backlog. Um, As Lindsay, I believe, discussed earlier, jury trials are gonna be different, or Alan discussed, jury trials are next to impossible, if not uh, impossible especially in civil litigation, uh, because of the shutdown of the courts and there being no one physically at the court or permitted in the courthouses. So we could pivot and see a lot more bench trials, for example. Um, We may see, and we're starting to see now, at least I am, that the court is attempting to manage its docket and the backlog by, as Alan mentioned, having more motions heard on the papers, which is common in our federal court in New Jersey, but not common in state court. But the state court is also moving to uh, Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams conferences and uh, arguing motions. It's not as efficient as being in person, uh, but they are attempting to manage the backlog that way. And as long as the attorneys embrace the technology and assist the court in working remotely and working virtually, that should ease some of the pressure on the backlog that we're seeing.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Lindsay, what other ideas should we consider in terms of steps that we can take now to help avoid backlog or gain a strategic advantage once the courts are fully open?
3: Yeah, One thing that I've been thinking about a lot is um, is moving into uh, more virtual arbitrations and trying to have um, some disputes that don't require jury trials um, resolved through arbitration, for example. I do a lot of consumer class litigation that Jeff was mentioning earlier, and um, a lot of that is already, um, as a result of the inf- strong enforceability of class action waivers, is, is generally going to arbitration anyway. Um, and so, I, if you if you are a consumer-facing industry and you don't currently have a class waiver provision in your arbitration agreement, you should you should certainly consider it. Um, but just more generally speaking about arbitration, I think. Um, As you all may know, it is a matter of contract. It's a matter of agreement. And so um, as you're thinking about your new agreements, or if you want to go back and and take a look at the agreements you currently have in place, you might take a look at an arbitration provision and consider adding one if you don't have one. Um, You might consider amending one if there's one already there, um, for example, to make arbitration mandatory or to include uh, rules on virtual arbitration or even to be more specific about the Um, administrator if you if you come across an administrator who's doing um, a great job at managing virtual arbitrations maybe you want to change your administrator to reflect to reflect that Um, you know while you while you have your contracts out you might as well take a look at some of the other provisions too. I think um, indemnification is a big one I would take a look at I also think force majeure provisions are going to be critical we have a whole other podcast on that so uh, I recommend that one to you if you're if you're interested in it and and then I guess I'll just plug at the, at the end here some contract analytics that we do. So if you have a lot of contracts and you're looking um, to sort of analyze them all at once, um, you know we have contract analytic tools that can pull out pull out all force majeure provisions, for example. So um, I just encourage you to take a look at the agreements you have in place, and then as you as you enter into new agreements, to to think about um, the changes that you might need to make in light of the current pandemic.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Well, with the five of us working in five different remote environments right now as a result of COVID-19, I'm going to turn to Allison and ask her to talk about how the remote work environment will impact data preservation and accumulation issues.
2: Thanks, Amy. Uh, We're we're definitely all living the dream of, of using, in some cases, very new technology and in other cases, technology that's been around a very long time, but we've never been forced uh, to use it to its full capacity. So we're definitely seeing a lot of data being generated uh, in in new locations. So for example, uh, I can see people storing information locally when they may not have done that whenever they were able to come into the office, uh, which can create some preservation and collection challenges, not not insurmountable, but another location to, to look for data. Uh, all of this video conferencing um, can be easily recorded. Uh, a lot of our clients have fed up their adoption of some technologies that they might have normally put through more hoops and spent more time developing policies around so that they could quickly start using them. Uh, for example, Microsoft Teams and other collaboration tools. Uh, and, and they're having to pretty quickly make decisions about whether or not they're going to Preserve those meetings and conferences and create again additional data sources. So these can be challenging sources in order to um, search and review, right? It's not a, a traditional document. It's a, it's a video file and it could be a large file and it could be a cumbersome file. So we're definitely generating new sources of information uh, and we're as a de- decentralized workforce, there's a higher risk of data being created on mobile devices, text messages, um and 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 i think even just on this call today i'm using skype um my mobile device uh blue jeans video conferencing and my um, network connection so we're all all of our clients and all the lawyers out there are definitely um being asked to use new sources of technology and that can create some interesting challenges so just thinking about making sure as we move forward uh, litigation that would involve data created during this time, uh, being thoughtful and creative about whether or not there would be some new sources that would need to be preserved, possibly modifying your communications and your legal holds, maybe sending out reminders. This is a a great time to maybe refresh your legal hold reminders and and remind people of their obligations to preserve information. Uh, In many cases, those notices also direct users maybe where not to store information or where not to create a a, a source that's hard to preserve and collect. Uh, So this could be an opportunity to remind people about uh, appropriate use policies and procedures and where you should not be storing business-related information uh, so that you're not creating little hidden troves of fun e-discovery surprises uh, for later. Uh, The last thing I would say on that kind of You know new sources of information is i suspect that requesting parties are adding this very quickly to their list of things that they're going to start asking for um it's not typically a a source of information people seek in litigation but now that we've all been creating all this great content and these podcasts and and recording uh, i could see this being something people start to ask about whenever they're seeking discovery so just thinking about that as you develop Um, preservation plans and litigation response plans, how you're going to manage that and and understand those issues so that you're not having to be reactive to them on the fly.
0: Thanks, Allison. Jeff, in-house counsel are already under all sorts of new forms of strain as they work to serve their in-house clients remotely but what can they do to address these particular issues with regard to the remote work environment?
4: Yeah, this is another pain point for our clients who are already in a very stressful situation. And I'm blessed to work with uh, some very capable in-house counsel, and I say that uh, in all respects, but especially as it relates to uh, electronic discovery and understanding their company's IT structure and where their data resides. Um, many years ago, was you know when this whole e-discovery process started, um, I probably couldn't say that. But in this day and age, clients and counsel, in-house counsel, are very good at knowing where the data resides, having a point person within their IT department to identify the data and to hold the data and preserve the data. Um, the problem, and Allison pointed it out, and she's the expert in this area. I'm just a litigator who addresses these issues on an as need basis. The problem that I see is that in-house counsel has to learn this all over again because the data is changing, um, the manner in which people are storing information is changing. The likelihood, like Allison said, that things are going to be saved on a, a, a remote device um, presents challenges, and how we define what we preserve is going to change too. I can I can tell you many clients would view instant messaging as not being something that needs to or should be preserved. Um, But in my practice alone, I'm using more IM now than I ever had in the past, and I'd imagine our clients are doing the same. So it's going to be relearning their data environment, how people are storing things, and making sure that they're enforcing whatever rules or new rules are going to impose to make sure that they don't see this issue come back uh, to hit them in a future litigation, because that's uh, what this is about. It's about future litigation and whether our clients were adept enough in moving to preserve documents, Uh, in the litigation.
0: Thank you, Jeff. To close out today's podcast, I've asked each of our presenters to look ahead and think of a way that this pandemic might permanently change how we manage our litigation files or or more broadly, how we're working together. So I'll start by asking Alan. The question I
1: thought of was, will courts, clients, and lawyers be more or less willing to engage in virtual hearings, arbitrations, depositions, etc., cetera? And I think the answer to that is yes. And I also think it's increasingly so as uh, the effects of the pandemic continue in the practice of law and as each of those various parties become more accustomed to and comfortable with uh, the continually evolving and impressive technology through trial and error. I can say that uh, while I was uh, initially adverse to it, uh, I recently had a television interview and uh, some of the capabilities that others on this panel were talking about. And Allison, uh, really uh, were remarkable to me and it was if I were there. So um, if uh, somebody like me can change and become uh, more accustomed to it, uh, I'm sure there's hope for others.
2: Jeff, what are your thoughts?
4: These times are abnormal, but I think when we're on the other side of this, what we view as being abnormal now will be more normal. Um, courts are embracing technology. I see the courts having more um, virtual hearings, more Zoom or Skype conferences. Um, you know, in New Jersey, it, you know, we're so densely populated, we have courts on every corner that uh, getting to a court is not an issue uh, under normal times. In other jurisdictions like Wyoming, you know, they've been probably doing this longer. Um, and are more comfortable, ironically enough, using technology because they don't have access to the courts that we have here. So I think the courts are going to embrace technology. I think you're gonna see less travel, um, and I'm seeing it now, not only with the courts, but with clients and with my colleagues at Pepper and Troutman.
3: Lindsay? Amy, this has been a fun, uh, fun thought exercise. I, I agree with everything that's been said. I also think that um, firms and courts and clients are going to have to invest more in technology. I think we already see that happening. Um, I think uh, now that we've made this initial investment, I think that will continue. Um, I think they may, there may be some initial backlash, and we may have some, um, you know, people really resisting the move to technology. But over time, I think we are going to become more reliant on technology um, and less reliant on for example, our office space. That we already have clients who've moved into a into an environment where lawyers don't have offices, which seems crazy. But I think that um, I think that that's that's where this is headed.
0: And what are your thoughts, Allison?
3: Thanks, Amy. I think we're definitely
2: seeing uh, something that really had started before we were all working so remotely, which is just the generation of so many different types of data including when you think about the deposition technology, that's a great example of, you know, in addition to recording the witness and the lawyer asking the questions, that technology can also record how the witness is interacting with the exhibit and how much time they're spending, what they're looking at, their clicks. Uh, So there's a lot of information that we're generating and tracking, including all these conference calls and video chats, and I expect there will be an increased interest in requiring folks to preserve, collect, and produce Uh, all the great content that we're creating, so a a new thing to consider, Um, not necessarily a new issue, but just evolving and new uses of technology.
0: Thank you, Allison. I'm happy that we're ending today's discussion by looking forward to a time when we are no longer under a state of emergency having such a significant impact on the courts and on our litigation practices. Thank you to Jeff, Alan, Allison, and Lindsay for your thoughtful insight. And thank you to those listening to today's podcast. If you have further questions, please feel free to contact any one of us or visit our joint Pepper Hamilton-Troutman Sanders COVID-19 Resource Center at covid19.pepperlaw.com.